Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 80. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. That's the bell. It's on. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Don't get under my skin. Don't rub me the wrong way. Don't ruffle my feathers. Basically, long story short, I'm telling you not to piss me off. Because if you do piss me off, I'll whip your ass. Now look at me when I'm talking to you. Because I've done my research on you. I don't give a rat's ass if you're worth a billion dollars, two billion dollars, three billion dollars, four billion dollars, five billion dollars, six billion dollars, seven billion dollars, eight billion dollars. You piss me off, I'll open up an eight billion dollar can of whoop ass and serve it to you, and that's all I got to say about that. That was legendary WWE wrestler, Stone Cold Steve Austin, with Donald Trump back in 2007. It was at WrestleMania, before an audience of millions, the brash, bald-headed, beer-drinking anti-hero who always fought the establishment, slammed Donald Trump into the wrestling mat with a Stone Cold stunner, his signature move. Now, the stunner is a three-quarter face-lock jawbreaker move that slams the opponent's head into the mat violently. And Donald Trump did piss off Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Stone Cold Steve Austin did unleash an $8 billion can of whoop-ass on him. And this week, so did the virus. The virus finally caught up to Donald Trump. After somehow avoiding a summer slam of destruction all across America, Donald Trump finally got hit by the virus. The super spreader of stupid himself, the Osama bin Laden of stupid, finally got snagged by his own catastrophic failures. I've called Donald Trump President Mayhem. I've called him a political suicide bomber. He's all those things. Those are among the many characters he plays. But he's also got a new one now. Donald Trump is the dirty bomb of American politics. A dirty bomb is not a weapon of mass destruction, but a weapon of mass disruption, where contamination and anxiety are the major objectives. And after spreading the stupid all year long, his own stupid finally caught up with him and pinned him to the mat. In front of a huge crowd, it jumped off the top rope and slammed him into the canvas. Personally, politically, physically. And although he tried to walk it off and act like he wasn't hurt, he is hurt. We can all see that. He's hurt. Badly. But unfortunately, per usual, As the greatest political suicide bomber America has ever seen, he's taken lots of others down with him. Just like he did for years and months with the stupid, President Mayhem has now infected others with the coronavirus too. Through his policies, through his failures, and likely through his own contaminated air droplets, he's infected over 37 people who were at the White House, ranging from his own wife, to advisor Kellyanne Conway, 
to Governor Chris Christie, to Vice Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Charles Ray. President Mayhem created the single biggest super spreader event in Washington, D.C., and maybe the most important super spreader event in the world. The top U.S. General, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley, and several members of the Pentagon's senior leadership have had to quarantine. The Joint Chiefs have had to quarantine. In Al-Qaeda's wildest dreams, they never could have dreamed of taking all our Joint Chiefs out of action. They don't have to, because Donald Trump did it for them. That's why now, more than any other time in modern history, our enemies are celebrating. Putin, Kim Jong-un, Al-Qaeda, they're all celebrating, just sitting back and watching Donald Trump destroy our country and weaken our national security piece by piece. It's a mayhem our president creates and our enemies celebrate. In 2016, the Russians attacked our elections. They attacked our country. They attacked our people. This year, they don't have to. They can just sit back and watch Donald Trump do it. It's like the greatest pay-per-view wrestling spectacle our enemies have ever seen. And it can get worse, much worse. And it will. Because, of course, per usual, President Mayhem is doing what he does best, making things worse. One thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Yep, he led. He led America into the greatest catastrophe of our time. And he's leading more and more people into the jaws of the virus every single day. And more and more right now. He has the best medicines. He has the best medical equipment. He has access to the newest experimental drug treatments. You can walk down to CVS and hope it's not closed when you get there. You can go on down to the VA and hope they've actually got a test for you. You can hope an ambulance gets to your house in time. He is throwing off his mask, making the Secret Service ride in a car with him while he's still contagious, and to top it all off, because he's always true to the villain he plays, he's blaming someone else for his infection. And it's like a scene from the darkest script that Vince McMahon could have ever written for the most disliked wrestler in the world. After all the shock and outrage, and after all the low points and disgustingness, President Mayhem managed to go even lower and throw the blame for his infection in a place even I couldn't have imagined. So I figured there would be a chance that I would catch it. Sometimes I'd be with in groups of, for instance, Gold Star families. I met with Gold Star families. I didn't want to cancel that. But they all came in and they all talked about their son and daughter and father and 
And, you know, they all came up to me and they'd tell me a story, Maria. It was really amazing, actually beautiful, but sad. They're telling the story of their son who, di- who just died, or daughter, or husband, who just died in a war, or recently died, you know, mostly over the last 10, 12 years, but some very recent. And I can't back up, Maria, and say, give me room. I want room. Give me 12 feet. Stay 12 feet away when you talk. They come, they come within an inch of my face sometimes. They want to hug me and they want to kiss me. And they do. And frankly, I'm not telling them to back up. I'm not doing it. But I did say it's like, you know, it's, it's obviously dangerous. It's a dangerous thing, I guess, if you go by the, the COVID thing. He blamed Gold Star families for giving him COVID. Gold Star families who lost their family members to combat. He's blaming his COVID infection on them. It's a crazier story than you'd ever see in the WWE. He fucked up badly again, and he knew this story was about to hit. So that's probably why he released this crazy-ass video. I took over a depleted military, old equipment, broken equipment, Even in the Army, all brand new uniforms with the belt, everybody wanted the belt. But we spent $2.5 trillion. We got everybody pay increases, three of them. There's never seen anything like what I've done for the military. As far as the VA is concerned, what we've done there with choice and accountability, the VA would be treating people badly. We couldn't do anything about the people that were treating our great soldiers, our great heroes badly. Now you fire them right away because of accountability. For 45 years, they were trying to get that. For more than 45 years, they were trying to get choice. Obama gave you a weak version that didn't work. It was a joke. I gave you the Mission Act, which is phenomenal, and it's worked out fantastically well. And we now had a 91% approval rating from the vets, our great vets, our great heroes. So I just want to tell you, we have your back. Our military has never been stronger. It's never been better. We've never had equipment like we have right now. We have brand new tanks and planes, F-35s, all of the best of everything. But our military has never been in stronger shape, whether it's rockets or missiles or anything you can name. We're building a lot of ships right now. We're getting our Navy back to where it should be. Everything that you can name is now under development or already developed and sent. Many, many planes are coming. They've been ordered, they're being built, they're coming. Jet fighters, bombers, tankers. So for our military, I just want to let you know there's never been a president that has your back like I do. When he took over, our military was not depleted. He has not fixed the VA. Choice was not something in the works for 45 years. 91% of vets do not approve of the VA. And nobody cared about any belts. This is all bullshit in politics per usual. And every time President Mayhem says that no president has ever had the backs of our military like he does, the ghosts of General Dwight D. Eisenhower and General Ulysses S. Grant and General George Washington laugh louder than a howitzer. And now, of course, the drama continues. And after so many recent ass whoopings, Trump is doing what cowards do when they can't fight a fair fight with rules that level things. He's running away. Trump says he won't debate Biden again. But I'm not going to do a virtual debate. 
So you're not so, Mr. President, you're not going to do it because the CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, announcing this morning uh, that the second presidential debate will be virtual. Are you saying you're not going to participate? No, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. If Trump won't debate, Biden should still get that time and the platform and audience with the American people. And Biden should donate it to Gold Star families and groups like TAPS. Our Gold Star families continue to be, like so many of us, but even more so, riders on this crazy storm that is America right now. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Our Gold Star families continue to sacrifice. And Trump says he loves them. President Mayhem loves the military so much that he exposed troops to COVID at his White House super spreader event and blamed them for giving him the virus. And Putin, Kim Jong-un, and Al-Qaeda love it all. Because every day with Donald Trump in the White House is a demented steel cage match of chaos and carnage. Donald Trump is a tables, ladders, and chairs wrestling match of destruction for our country. He slammed our military through a table. He's pile-driving our economy off a ladder, and he's hitting our public health over the head repeatedly with a chair every single day. It's painful to watch, and it won't end soon. But it will end. The bell will ring. And after it does, the match will continue to spill out of the ring, into the stands, backstage, into the parking lot, and out into the streets. The chaos and carnage of the Trump presidency will continue, even after the election. But eventually, it will end. It will be put down. All the shit-talking will stop. It'll be broken. It'll be loaded into an ambulance and retired forever. It will end. It will end because good people will stand up and say no. Stand up and speak out. Stand up and vote. Stand up and help others. Good people who care about their country. Good people who don't care about parties. Good people with empathy and heart and toughness and compassion and humor. Good people with courage. Good people like Mick Foley. WWE legend Mick Foley is one of the greatest and most beloved professional wrestlers of all time and our first guest that has his own action figure. In 2013, Mick was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, the same year as Donald Trump. They both went into the WWE Hall of Fame at the same time. Mick Foley's walkout music, this song, is called Wreck. And while Donald Trump continues to wreck our country, and bring you down, McFoley is going to try to brighten your day and lift you up. Mick's a professional wrestler, multi-time best-selling author, turned stand-up comedian, spoken word performer, and activist. McFoley earned the nickname the Hardcore Legend for his ability to absorb seemingly inhuman punishment in some of the most dramatic wrestling matches in sports entertainment history. After decades in the wrestling circuit around the country and around the world, 
He spent 11 years in the WWE wrestling under the name Cactus Jack. As Cactus Jack, Mick won the 1995 King of Deathmatch tournament in Yokohama, Japan. And despite the amputation of his right ear in a match against Vader in Munich, Germany in 1994, he continued wrestling. And Mick's career soared to huge heights as Mankind, a character he claimed was inspired by a combination of reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and listening to the music of Tori Amos. And as Mankind, Mick was a three-time WWE champion. And he's best known for his epic, brutal battle with The Undertaker in 1998's Hell in a Cell match when he was knocked unconscious after falls off of and through a 16-foot cell structure. Despite injury, Mick finished the match with one of his front teeth lodged in his nose. Throughout his recoveries, Mick was always an intellectual, always a patriot, always a thinker. And with retirement looming, he penned his own memoir, Have a Nice Day, writing 200,000 words in longhand in just 50 days. The book showed Mick's paradoxical blend of wit, wisdom, wildness, and warmth, and shocked the literary world by hitting number one on the New York Times bestseller list in 1999. The book stayed in the Times list for 26 weeks, and his 2001 follow-up, Foley is Good, hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers list as well. He's published a total of 10 books, four memoirs, four children's books, and two novels. He's been on 30 Rock and Boy Meets World. He's been a guest on Jon Stewart's Daily Show and Good Morning America. And he's been a volunteer with Rain, the nation's largest anti-sexual assault organization. Mick was recognized for his work with Rain at the 2010 Rally to Restore Sanity and or Fear with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert, where he was awarded a Medal of Reasonableness. And Mick and his family have sponsored kids with Child Fund International for 20 years. Mick's played Mankind, Cactus Jack, and Dude Love. But the best and most important character that Mick Foley plays is himself. He's a father of four, a dedicated supporter of military and veterans charities, and a constant source of support for children's causes and an inspiration to millions worldwide. He even grows a beard every year to play Santa Claus. But he's been silent on the 2020 election until now. Mick Foley enters our ring to break his silence exclusively on angry Americans and to speak out about the election, the state of affairs in America, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and whether or not he thinks The Rock will run for president one day. And just like he did his entire career, Mick Foley is delivering powerful blows that will make an audience cheer, even if he has to lose an ear to do it. The irony of professional wrestling is, okay, we're the phony sport, but yet we are the sport that continues when one of the participants loses an ear. So any other thing, let's take a timeout, let's check on this guy. Like, no, we've got an ending, and we're going to get to that finish line, you know, by any way possible. Um, but I had troops who would swear that I'd made a greater sacrifice. And I even told one gentleman, I said, uh, you know, like, you, you gave up your leg for your country. I lost an ear in a wrestling match. And yet you think my sacrifice is greater? And then they would look at me and think it over and go, yes, I do. It's likely the most surprising interview we've had on this show so far, especially if you don't know who Mick Foley is and if you've never heard him before. But before we get to Mick, there was another kind of brutal clash this week, the Harris-Pence debate. There was never a more anticipated, 
less electorally consequential debate than this one. And though it won't matter much at the ballot box, it mattered tremendously to the world, to history, and especially to our children to have Kamala Harris on that stage, an Indian and African-American woman. And only the second black woman senator in history was in a vice presidential debate. That's the takeaway. But there were also some fireworks. Harris hit Pence hard in the pandemic, but notably did not mention a national mask mandate. She was effective, nervous at first, but settled in. Pence was cool, swarmy, and polished. He was experienced. And it was the single greatest debate ever for memorable facial gestures. Harris showed tremendous discipline time and time again by not stopping Mike Pence herself and letting moderator Susan Page do it. It kept her out of the fray. It made her look more presidential. And that's really what we need from our commander in chief. And she came after Pence and Trump with the losers and suckers stuff, which was exactly the right way for Harris to counter Pence. It hurts Trump more than anything else with independents and any Republicans that are left to be moved. But Pence had a highly effective counter, referring to his son, who is right now a Marine on active duty. Good debates are like a tennis match, and their national security segment in particular was a very good extended volley. And there's no debating that after serving as VP, Mike Pence's national security experience dwarfs Kamala Harris's. There's nothing like being on the inside for that stuff. But experience is no substitute for judgment. And Joe Biden has both. Pence does not. Susan Page of USA Today failed as a moderator, just as Chris Wallace did in the debate before. And folks ask, can anyone moderate a debate with a firm hand or not? That's what Preet Bharaha asked. And I said, yes, Errol Lewis can. Errol Lewis of New York One is the best moderator in America, and I talked to him about how it's done back in episode 42. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out, especially now. But if you haven't heard about Errol Lewis, you heard about the fly. A fly landed on Mike Pence's head. And you actually heard about cannabis. Kamala Harris was the first politician to have the courage and the political smarts to actually focus on decriminalizing marijuana. It's the most underappreciated, nonpartisan, populist issue in America. And both parties would be smart to focus on it often. And there was the biggest focus on environmental issues in a long time, from fracking to the fires out west to climate change. And that was great. And I hope that they would have the same focus on non-environmental national security issues, especially as the debate happened on the anniversary of the start of the war in Afghanistan. But they didn't. And right before the debate began, there was non-news news from Trump that you probably missed. At 7.28 Eastern, 90 minutes or so before the debate started, Trump tweeted that all U.S. troops would be out of Afghanistan by Christmas. He tweeted, we should have the small remaining number of our brave men and women serving in Afghanistan home by Christmas. It was more chaos, more political bullshit, more politicizing of our military and national defense, more of the same. And on the 19th anniversary of the war in Afghanistan, at least in the debate, it was Forgotistan. And 
And Defense Department officials have not made any public comments about the troop withdrawal plans for the country. Officials from Central Command and the Pentagon referred all questions to the White House. Because yet again, the Pentagon had no idea what the hell Trump was talking about. 19 years ago, the war in Afghanistan began. And about 8,600 American troops are in harm's way there right now. And it didn't get a single mention from either candidate in the debate. Afghanistan, even on its 19th birthday, a birthday when it's old enough to drive, is still for God to stand. Who knows if it'll come up in another debate? Who knows if there'll be another debate? But this is a public service announcement. If there is another debate or two, skip the networks, skip all the hype, and watch the debate on C-SPAN. And whether there's another debate rumble or not, the real battle royal will be after the election. And all the greatest villains will be there. Instead of the Dudley boys, it'll be the Proud boys. Instead of Nikolai Volkov, it'll be Vladimir Putin. Instead of mankind, it'll be QAnon. It'll be war. And all the crazies will be there. But so will the helpers. When the greatest battle royal of American politics happens this fall on Election Day and spills on afterwards into the winter and likely into 2021, look for the helpers. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Look for the helpers like Mick Foley. The election is going to be like a gigantic political and social battle royal. And just like a great battle royal, you need surprise appearances. And it's often the surprise appearances that turn the tide and win the match. That's what Mick Foley can be. Even if he influences just a few hundred voters, voters that love wrestling, voters that don't watch the news and respect what he has to say, it could be the difference. In 2000, after the election, and after the first recount in Florida, George W. Bush had just a 317-vote margin over Al Gore. 317 votes, just a few hundred votes. If Mick Foley can influence just a few hundred key voters, it could be the difference in Iowa or Arizona or Florida, and the difference in the election. My conversation with Mick is an important one and an inspiring one. Eddie Van Halen died this week. When my wife texted me, all I could utter was, oh no. The greatest guitarist I've ever seen, the greatest guitarist of our time, maybe the greatest guitarist in history, second only maybe to Jimi Hendrix, was gone. Eddie Van Halen inspired me to try to learn to play guitar, and I was devastated. Eddie Van Halen once said, all I know is that rock and roll guitar, like blues guitar, should be melody, speed, and taste, but most important, it should have emotion. I just want my guitar playing to make people feel something, happy, sad, even horny. 
Eddie Van Halen was born in the Netherlands in 1955, a year after his older brother Alex. And his father Jan was a gifted clarinet, and saxophone, and piano player. The family came to America when Eddie was eight and settled in Pasadena, California. And with so many kids in America facing the difficulties of going back to school right now, here's Eddie Van Halen on his first day of school in America. Oh, it was absolutely frightening. Because, <laughs> you know, we already went through that in Holland, first day, first, you know, first grade. Now you're in a whole country where you can't speak the language and you know absolutely nothing about anything. And yeah, it was, it was beyond frightening. I don't even know how to explain. But, you know, I think it made us stronger because you had to. I mean, the, the school that we went to was still se- segregated at the time, believe it or not. And uh, uh, since we couldn't speak the language, we were considered uh, a minority. And um, uh, my, my first friends in America were black. Uh, their names were Stephen and Russell. And we became fast friends because I could outrun them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was uh, actually the... The white people that, that were the bullies, you know, they would tear up my, my homework papers, make me eat playground sand and all these things, and the black kids stuck up for me. So, Yet another case for facing down bullies, sticking together, and rooting for the little guy. And yet another case for welcoming immigrants to America. One of them just might grow up to be Eddie Van Halen. Eddie taught us to play. Eddie taught us to dream. Eddie taught us to fight. And Eddie taught us about the moment. Eddie taught us about right now. So shave that chest. Slide on those tights. Lace up those really high boots. Tape up those wrists. Pump up those muscles. Strap on that mask and cue up the walkout music. And let's get ready to rumble. It's on. And this is the biggest match in our country's history. And we're taking on the worst, nastiest, most despicable, most hated villain America's ever faced. But we've got one of the greatest wrestlers in history in our corner, in America's corner. And he's bringing his friends. He's bringing The Rock. And he's bringing Cactus Jack. And he's bringing mankind, and he's bringing dude love. Shit, he's even bringing Santa Claus. But most of all, he's bringing himself. He's bringing Mick Foley. Mick Foley from Ward Melville High School in Long Island, New York. This is a fall of madness, and Angry Americans is continuing to guide you through it all with powerful guests and a unique, independent, and hard-hitting perspective unlike anywhere else in the media. That bell is already rung. We're deep into this match, and no matter what happens, no matter what villains appear, we all need to stay focused, stay vigilant, and stay frosty. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially after the last few weeks. But this podcast isn't just about being angry. It's also about being active, informed, and vigilant. It's about speaking truth to power. And it's about rooting for the good guys, just like in wrestling. Just like every episode, we're bringing the four eyes. It's a tombstone pile driver of integrity. It's a people's elbow of information. It's a super fly splash of inspiration. 
and it's a stone-cold stunner of impact. The rattlesnake is finally going to bite Donald Trump. Just like Steve Austin did. America's getting ready to deliver the greatest political stone-cold stunner Donald Trump's ever seen. This is the moment. Welcome to the squared circle of America 2020. Welcome to the biggest match our country has ever had on the biggest stage in the world. Welcome to the magic moment. Make future plans. Don't dream about yesterday. Come on, turn this thing around right now. Hey, it's your tomorrow right now. Come on, it's everything. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 80. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the globe. This is a moment I've been waiting for since I started my show. I am very happy to be joined by one of the most intelligent, one of the most dynamic, one of the most interesting human beings I know. The great and powerful Mick Foley joins us on Angry Americans. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm a little I'm scared now. You've set that bar pretty high for me just came on and said he's a former pro wrestler. Then that bar is really low. And all I have to do is just kind of like hurdle over a low bar to, to surprise people. But I'll try to live up to your expectations. You are so much more than just a wrestler. And that's why I am so honored to have you on this show. Uh, and before we were, we were hitting record here, we were trying to figure out where we first met. And it was a long time ago. It's probably like maybe a decade and a half ago. Right, Mick? I'm guessing right around 2003, and uh, you uh, were just recently out of the uh, service. I believe you'd started the uh, uh, the what was the project called at the time? It was Iraq. called Operation Truth in the beginning. Yeah, okay, Operation Truth, and I believe it was at Air America. Um, in the it was maybe the second or third year of Air America, and at that time uh, I was well-read enough and knowledgeable enough to fill in uh, for like a week at a time as co-host on the morning sedition. And I believe that's where we met. So it must've been like around maybe 2004 is when I got back and I started coming into air America. And who, who did you co-host with on that show? It would have been Mark Marin. I thought Uh, so. Right. Mark Marin and Mark. I did it one week. I came on a couple times as a guest. And I guess I did well enough that they asked me if I'd like to co-host. Uh, Mark's uh, co-host took a week off. And then at another point, Mark took a week off. And I wish I remember the gentleman's name that he co-hosted with. He was a great guy. Uh, presumably, he still is a great guy. 
but what, one of the things I enjoyed about it is I would get feedback from Air America after the show, and they'd go like, either, I've never even watched wrestling, but I really enjoy listening to this guy, or, or someone would go, I hate wrestling, and I still enjoyed listening to this guy. So I really tried to come on and, uh, you know, I, I mean, to this day, interviewing Samantha Power is one of the great, uh, you know, great things I've done. One of the, you know, things I'm proudest of. So it would be, you know, it was really nice to come on and be taken seriously by, uh, you know, authors and politicians and movers and shakers. Yeah, that was like early days of Air America was kind of a beehive of a place of folks that now have gone on to do pretty. Sam's uh, Cedar is out there. Mark Marin, Al Franken became a senator. Janine Garofalo was there, right? Who was very, very high profile time. And Rachel Maddow, maybe most yeah. of all, right? Um, and I remember going, it was the first radio show I ever did in my life. And it was uh, Liz Winstead who founded The Daily Show. Yeah. A, young, a young Rachel Maddow. And Chuck D, the legendary Chuck D. That's right. It would be Rachel and Chuck and Liz uh, together. Yeah. And, uh, and it was clear that Rachel was going to be uh, destined for uh, greater things. One, one note on Rachel. Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned this. Uh, I came back right before she got the job with MSNBC. Um, I was invited to be on her show. On, I believe it was still on Air America. This would have been 2007. I'm not sure if it was Air America or it was a different outlet. And I was told by the producer, yeah, Rachel was reading your book uh, on the uh, subway. Like, I don't think she'll get all the way through it, but she'll probably read two-thirds of it. And it was a 15-minute interview. And so, you know, I'm not, not to jump into the Trump stuff so quickly, but I'm like, we have a president who doesn't read his PDB, right? And here's Rachel Maddow on a subway preparing for an interview with a wrestler that she could literally like phone in. Like, you know, just the idea that you have one person who will do their, like if she's going to prepare for six hours, say it took six hours to talk to a wrestler for 15 minutes, imagine the preparation she puts in to talk to some of the, the, you know, the bigger people in the world. So that always made a huge impression on me because I've been there where a guy obviously didn't read the book. You know, so tell me, what does this book mean to you? And right in my head, I'm like, he has no idea. <laughs> just, you can just work your way through it or you can read bullet points and, uh, you know, pick apart one thing. I, I've learned that's what some people do. They find the yeah. weakest argument and then uh, capitalize on that but Rachel did a great job and I always uh, you know always looked up to her partially because of that partially because I think she does a great job on her show yeah I think anybody who's been around her has to respect her work ethic I mean it's exceptional yeah. I remember the first couple of days meeting her she she famously would spread newspapers out across an entire boardroom and just read them all like cover to cover every day that was part of her preparation yeah. she reads you know, voraciously. Um, and she takes everybody really seriously and shows respect. And I think that's one of my favorite things about her as a friend, but also as an admirer of her work. She treats everybody well. I mean, there's a lot of people who I knew in the early days who rose up and treat people like shit or were never, you know, kind or thoughtful. She's always been kind and thoughtful um, and deliberate in, in her preparation. And, and it shows, but that was a, that was a wild place to be, man. I'm, I'm a young guy back from the army. I'm walking down one hallway. There's Chuck D another hallway. There's Mick Foley. I mean, that was, that was a hell of an entrance into politics for me, man. But similarly, you were incredibly kind always so much. I want to get into, I want to talk about how you and Trump are in the same 
class of the WWE Hall of Fame. I want to talk yes. about your videos. I want to talk about your books. I want to talk about Santa and many other important roles you play. But I think maybe the most important role or the most important character that you have is Mick. Like you're, you're an incredible guy. Every time I talk to you, you make me happy. Like I told you when we tuned in, I'm like, my day is already better. You, you know, you used to always say, have a nice day. Every time you talk to Mick Foley, you're going to have a nice day. So for folks listening to you for the first time, that's what they can expect. But let me ask you, my friend, last time I saw you in person uh, was at the IAVA uh, benefit at the Classic Car Club. I think it was last November, right around yeah. Veterans Day. You were there. You're always there for charities. You're always there for military and veterans. A lot of times when there's no cameras and without any fanfare. But now you're home. Uh, the pandemic has hit. How are you? And how are the people close to you? Where are you? And what's it been like for you since this pandemic hit and, you know, over this wild and crazy year? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I just want to touch on something you said about the veterans. Um, yeah, I made it a point for, I think, for about at least two years in a row. I went to Walter Reed and Bethesda, what is now Walter Reed Military Medical Center. It used to be the Bethesda uh, Naval Medical Center. And the original Walter Reed has been transformed into something else. And I would make it a point to go to Washington, D.C. every month for two months to visit the service members who've been injured um, and I didn't, I did not agree with the basis upon we, which we went to war, but I thought we need to respect and show, you know, our admiration for the people doing the fighting the country has called them to. I really felt strongly about that. And so I met a lot of the most powerful people in Washington at that time. And, uh, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but it ended up in a nice conversation, uh, <laughs> I eventually had with the. Paul Wolfowitz, who was, yeah, he was the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense because he was probably my most disliked member of the Bush administration, right? But when I would go in there and uh, meet the uh, service members, there was one guy, uh, he did a great imitation of every congressman. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't differentiate between uh, um, Republican and Democratic, he would just say like, hey, oh, what happened? Oh, that's bad. That's really bad. Here, let's take a picture, you know? <laughs> and they would be like, well, this guy sits here for an hour and listens to us and tells stories. So I got to, you know, I, I, I earned their confidence. And uh, when I would see that Wolfowitz had visited, I was like, oh, what was Paul Wolfowitz like? And to a man and to a woman, they all raved about him. And I thought, like, am I getting something wrong? Now, granted, I don't think his policies were correct. And he was the guy who said that we could go into Iraq, and Iraq was a country that could start paying for its own transformation quickly. So he was wrong on some things. But when I finally got a chance to meet him, he, like, cornered me at the, the Friday night steak dinner they used to have. And I was like, oh, no, this is Wolfowitz coming after me. He's like a linebacker running, you know, in pursuit. And, I, and so I had made a little small talk with him. And I said, may I be honest with you, sir? He goes, of course. I said, I never really liked you. <laughs> he laughed. And I said, but I hear great things about you from every service member, you know, and they weren't like that about a lot of people who came in. So, you know, you, I do try to see things from both sides, try to see where I may have been wrong, how I can better understand the thought process. Um, but uh, again, jumping and going off on a tangent, it just makes what's going on currently um, so aggravating because you have, you know, obviously people in, at the top who just don't even consider alternate points of view. 
Mm. Oh, you want to know where I am, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that was a good, that was, that was a good tangent, especially, you know, given that Walter Reed has been in the spotlight now that Trump was there. I mean, I think it's important. I I was reading a a tweet from a reporter who said, you know, I think it was uh, Abby Bennett. She said, please stop calling Walter Reed, everybody. Like they have shit to do. And like every reporter was calling Walter Reed all week long and forgetting that there are wounded troops there. And I got to tell you, I want to get into this a bit later, Mick, but you know, Wolfowitz coming in is one thing. I probably would have been less restrained than you were, even though I'm not a professional wrestler. Um, but for the other guys and gals who have body shattered, extreme yeah. injuries, seeing you and a guy that's been through so much must have been really, uh, really inspiring for them. I know it gave them hope. It gave them, it probably gave them some useful tips on how to deal with pain and, and recovery. But to see you come walking through those doors probably gave them a, a big boost. But I want to let you get back to, your, your life story is inspiring. You grew up not far from where my wife grew up, but where have you been, you know, during the pandemic and where are you now? I just want to touch on one thing you were saying about the troops. There had to have been four or five different points where I would meet uh, a young man or uh, the, I think Melissa Strock was the first woman I met. She lost both, both of her legs and I'm still in touch with her to this day. Uh, but there would be service members who would swear I'd sacrifice more <laughs> than they had. But I'd be looking at men and women who lost limbs, and, and I'd be like, I lost part of my ear. I <laughs> lost, you lost a leg. Just, I mean, two legs. And I said, and, you, and here's the ear for those people. You know, yeah. The good one, the not so good one. What I'm proud of is not that I lost it, but that I finished the match. Like, the irony of professional wrestling is, okay, we're the phony sport, but yet we are the sport that continues when one of the participants loses an ear. So any other thing, let's take a timeout, let's check on this guy. Like, no, we've got an ending, and we're going to get to that finish line, you know, by any way possible. Um, but I had troops who would swear that I had made a greater sacrifice. And I even told one gentleman, I said, uh, you know, like you, you gave up your leg for your country. I lost an ear in a wrestling match. And yet you think my sacrifice is greater. And then they would look at me and think it over. Go, yes, I do. So, uh, and also you, I kept wanted- do- you also kept doing it, Mick, right. And you did it on TV and you like got thrown off the top of cages and you got, you know, in massive battles with the rock and other people like that, you kept going back for more and more when they, when they get hurt for the most part, they're done and they come home. You keep going back in over for decades uh, and decades and take punishment. I mean, you're, 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 you're not just a wrestler. You're one of the greatest wrestlers ever. And I think one of the greatest performers that we've ever seen because of your commitment, your sacrifice, your courage, just, the insanity of some of the things you've done, and I say that with respect. Like, thank you. It, it really is. It's it's superhuman. You're not just a. You're like the greatest stunt person of our time. Some of the stuff you've done really does inspire people because of how mind blowing it is. Now, I I appreciate that. I think uh, I, there is a case to be made for uh, going above and beyond to entertain, and uh, and that was one of the things I didn't realize. Until years went by, I, I was known as Cactus Jack for 12 years, found out years later that Mr. McMahon's, Vince McMahon's concession for bringing me in was that uh, he didn't think I looked like a star. So uh, for those who don't know, I've got a, uh, a, an Amazon, a cheap Amazon mankind mask here that actually looks remarkably authentic. 
and so that kind of became an iconic look, and it worked out well for me. But uh, originally, it was Mr. McMahon's concession. Uh, Bruce Pritchard was his right-hand man. Then after my name had been brought up for the upteens time, in the fall of 1995, Mr. McMahon slammed his hand down at the table and said, all right, damn it. I'll bring him in, but I'm covering up his face. So people were thinking about what's the, like the, the hidden, uh, you know, uh, psychological meaning behind the mankind mask. And I'm like, there was none. Just one man's quest, a billionaire's quest to cover up another man's face. Uh, but we so, made so it work. Much, so, much, so much symbolism packed into that, Mick, right? I mean, especially now that, you know, McMahon, years later, McMahon is a Trump supporter. Trump was in uh, wrestling around those times. His wife, Vince McMahon's wife, uh, ran. Did she win the Senate in Connecticut? Oh, she lost twice. She, she lost twice, uh, right? But his cabinet, uh, small business administration. And right. the remarkable thing was she was the least controversial member of the cabinet. Like, you never heard an ill word about Linda McMahon. Yeah, right. All these other guys creating controversies on the cabinet, and uh, here's Linda McMahon. You never heard of. I think she runs his pack now. So yeah, it, you but know, a I, highly political family, a highly political. You know, now with the connections to Trump, an even deeper backstory. But I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep coming back to it because I love your story. Where the hell are you, Mick? Where are you? <laughs> thanks. Thanks for keeping me on track, Paul. You're a good man. Uh, I'm on Long Island. This is a, I grew up on Long Island, uh, moved back. I lived all over the South, uh, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, uh, when I was actively wrestling and then moved back to uh, Long Island when I retired to be closer to my mom and dad. And because I was at the time the WWF uh, commissioner and they had me doing a lot of work in the New York and Connecticut area. So it seemed to make sense at that time. But we've uh, sold the house. I'm just in the process of decluttering. You could record an album here. Echo! <laughs> now pinch hitting. Manny Mota. Some of your listeners will get the airplane yeah, reference. That's good. And so it's a little bit sad. Uh, the family's down in Florida. Um, it has been for you know the entire year. And uh, I keep going back and forth. Uh, we have sold the house, and uh, we'll be Floridians in the next month or so. You and you and Trump, and hopefully he'll be joining you down there soon. Uh, but it, and what's it been like for you, man? And your fan? I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've had. You got to tell me how many surgeries, countless injuries. Your body has been beaten and battered. I don't know if you're at increased risk from COVID or not, or if people close to you are, but. You, what's what's this been like for you and for your family over the last six months or so, Mick? It's been tough because my wife has uh, pre-existing conditions. And she's really, I mean, we should all be taking it seriously. She takes it ultra seriously. So I went out on the road. This is where, you know, the, you know, the revelations in the Robert Woodward book that Trump knew and didn't let on. I mean, that has consequences. And, you know, I don't know if you can put a number to tribute the number lost that didn't need to die directly to him. I think you can make an argument that you can, but I know in my personal case, like no way I would have gone out on the road in the middle of March had I known the seriousness mm. of uh, the, the coronavirus. So I was like four days into what was supposed to be, a, uh, I was supposed to be out for 
54 days, something of that nature. You know, I had 21 states in 54 days, um, uh, one, only one or two days off. And even on the first day, I said, hey, I know this thing is out there, but we're going to continue on with all the dates because we didn't know the nature yet. And of the feedback I got, only one person said, aren't you being selfish? But at the time, I didn't think of it that way. Mm. But within a couple of days, it became really obvious that this thing was serious. So I had to cancel the entire tour. Uh, you know, had to fight with a couple of the venues. And I was like, I can't be in a situation where we're, we're encouraging people to crowd together. If you're doing a good job, they're laughing. I do a one-man show, so it's not necessarily a stand-up comedy show, but some of the stories are funny. Some of them are touching, you know. Uh, some of them are just interesting. My son, when he was like uh, six, was like, Dad, uh, your stories are interesting, but they're not funny. <laughs> like, he was always a, a truth teller. I was like, oh, thank you. Thanks a lot, son. I appreciate that. But there are times people laugh and clearly, you know, there's more particles and projecting further. Right. And so I went from having 54 straight days to just having nothing on the calendar for months. And because I'd been out there, my wife really didn't want me to, uh, you know, to be around because of the danger it would pose to her. And so I was in a situation where I'm, you know, you realize that seriousness of something like loneliness you know this pandemic has exacerbated any condition that someone might have if people are prone to depression it's going to make it worse if they're alone it's going to make you more lonely so I, it really has allowed me to appreciate the little things in life i started going out we have a beautiful house on a river which i never took in and then i started going out every every day to look at the river uh, luckily cameo videos uh, came along and I, for the first time in my life, found a way to make a little money without traveling long distances. So I'd go out there and I'd do my videos and I'd, I'd bought a little fire pit and started appreciating uh, the little things in life. Uh, so one of the things I tell people is, uh, you know, even with uh, bird feeding, you find out that the house, there's a, there's, a, there's a point here. So hear me out, okay? Always. There's I got all these top-of-the-line feeders and the house sparrows start coming and flocking. I don't want the house sparrows, right? They're bully birds. No matter what I try, it's different seeds, different feeders, they're adapting. It got to the point where you just want to give up. And then what will happen, Paul, is that at a certain time of the evening, those birds go away. And now here come the chickadees, the nuthatches, the titmice. And that's a word that just makes you happy, right? Just to say. So I tell people the goal in life is to find your titmouse, right? That, just find that little thing that makes you happy, that gets you through that day. Uh, and I think a lot of us need that, especially when uh, so much was up in the air, the future, we had, so much was unclear. And now we have a better idea of uh, this pandemic and we're trying to ride it out. We know what keeps us safe. That's what's so aggravating. That's, that's part of the reason I decided to, to speak out a little bit. Um, because as you know, you've been on me for a while. And I was like, oh, I, I, I'll do something two weeks before the election, right? I don't want people to hate me. There's a lot of hatred out there, a lot of anger when you express an opinion. But really, the politiza politicization, help me with that word, Darn. political nature. I know I could get it right. Two-time New York Times, number one best-selling author, can't say politicization. Um, of this pandemic is really what made me, you know, 
turned a corner for me and made me see that maybe my voice is something I should be sharing. That if there are people who are on the fence, and I know your show has a lot of independent listeners, if they realize how agonizing it was for me to make the decision to speak out, get all that angry. Uh, I had like probably like a 95% approval rating among wrestling fans, you know? I was very well liked. And all of a sudden, you speak out and you just you anger a certain percentage of those people, some of whom will come back to you over time and some of whom will not. And I had to make the decision of whether I was willing to lose those people to speak up for what I saw out there. And ultimately, you know, the answer was yes, it's important enough for me to lose some fans and to anger some people, some of whom might come back. I want to go deeper on that in a second, but I have to do rapid fire and get two questions in that I am dying to ask of you that I've asked of all of our guests. And, and uh, sidebar, if folks are listening and you've never watched video of this, we always have companion video. This is the one you want to watch the video for. You want to go over to angryamericans.us. You want to see the mankind mask. You want to see the epic beard that Mick's got. You just drank something, Mick. What does Mick Foley drink? This is the perfect timing. This is, oh, this is, this is a, uh, organic the uh, mighty dozen. So it's difficult when you're by yourself. Or organic. Trying. It's organic kale juice, which you are so full of surprises, Mick Foley. That, like you it never. It, in, right. You have to get those greens. So in. when you're not, this, this is a perfect segue. This is you're, you're a master of segues of one liners. They teach you guys this in like WWE school. Right. But I want to ask you, Mick Foley, what is your drink of choice when you're not drinking kale juice? What is your, your, your beverage of choice if you're sitting by the fire pit and looking at the tit mice? Or, well, what's, your, what's your drink of, or cocktail Ooh. of choice? Ooh. Oh, um, uh, I do enjoy my one cup of coffee. I'm going with Newman's Own this time. And I am trying to drink, uh, eat healthier. So I've been having uh, smoothies with the Orgain meal replacement. Yeah. Now, what do you do? You partake in the uh, in the alcoholic beverages, and if you do, what is your what is your choice there? Rarely, uh, but I will occasionally have a beer or a little shot of sambuca. Ah. It, it makes me happy, but it also makes me hungry. So I have to be very careful with uh, you know when and how I use it. I do. You have a favorite beer? Uh, yeah, I'll probably get some razzing for this, but I do enjoy Michelob Ultra. And then I enjoy, I, I've heard Stephen Colbert make a comment about, uh, you know, Michelob Ultra and, uh, and making love in a canoe. <laughs> he said they're both effing near water. I was, hey, man, I drink Michelob Ultra. In case, you, here's the thing, Paul. My daughter's 26. She's only heard me use the F-bomb twice outside. Wow. Do a one-man show, and I go for about 90 minutes, including a Q&A, and my goal is I drop one F-bomb. And if I do it correctly, it's the power of the word. I think, you know, the words have a certain amount of power. And when guys overuse them, they lose that, that word, loses that power. So some nights I get a standing ovation for one F-bomb, and it really makes the whole night. Man, there, there, are, many, there are many reasons you're teaching me and inspiring me. I need more discipline. I, my my one-and-a-half-year-old's probably heard me say it more than that this day so far. But I'm working <laughs> on it. I'm working on it. Um, so, Mick, I want to ask you a question I ask of all of our guests. When you were growing up in Long Island, yeah. Mick Foley, what was your very first car? Oh, wow. Uh, my brother uh, went to Indiana University. He was not allowed to have a car as a 
freshman. So for one year, I had a Ford Mustang II that had been decked out. Not a lot under the engine, right? It's not the classic Mustang, Mm -hmm. but my brother had given it a great paint job. He bought the actual wheels that the General Lee had. And then I took whatever money I I made from my dishwashing job and decked it out with the top of the line stereo. So to this day, I've got one tenth the stereo in my leased vehicle that I had in, uh, that was 1982. And that was my favorite car, Ford Mustang II, decked out with the General Lee wheels. Wow. What, what year was it, Mick, and what color? I believe it was uh, 73, 72, 73, uh, maybe 74, and it was white. That it, was, it was nice, yeah. That was, it's been all downhill. When you go from the Mustang to a Ford Fairmont to a Plymouth Arrow. And then in 80, and then in 1990, uh, the Plymouth Arrow bit the dust. See, can I just segue? There's a story where we were having a pool mate when uh, I was uh, uh, living in the panhandle of Florida in a town called Nabar. And the guy, I won't say the name of the pool company, but I, I remember it to this day. <clears throat> His workers weren't showing up, you know, and, and it takes a lot to get me angry. And I was getting angry as no work was getting done. And the guy's name was Earl. He goes, hey, workers don't show up. They can't work. Like, your car breaks down. He can't make it to the show. I was like, no, that's where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. Because you know what we do? We have a screwdriver. We undo the plate. We leave the car on the side of the road. And we hitchhike to that next town. And that's the fate that uh, the, the Plymouth Arrow suffered somewhere in America. Maybe to this day, there's still a Plymouth Arrow on the side of the road. And uh, so I got a uh, 80, uh, 80, in 1990, I think it was in 1983, Chrysler LeBaron convertible, bought it for $3,500 and met my wife about a week later. So it's arguable that we would not be married if I'd had the Plymouth Arrow with the one door that didn't work. You are so full of surprises, Mick Foley. I love talking to you, and I knew that that question would not disappoint. You know, it's a little white cars can be controversial. I don't want to go too far in a sidebar, but white cars are 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 challenging. I will always remember uh, that when I was in Iraq, every time they'd have a bolo, be on the lookout, right? And it would it would always be a white sedan. And, really? And now, yeah, and in the Middle East, like like two out of three of every car is a white sedan. Right. And so it would always be be on the lookout for a white car. It's like it's like saying being on the lookout for a car with four wheels. Like there's a <laughs> lot of them out there. Yeah. Especially white sports cars. That's a that's a, that's a racy choice, Mick. Um, but you're you're a man is full of surprises. I want to get to many things, but I want to come back to what you said earlier, because you and I have been in touch for many years. We exchange ideas and information um, and causes. And you got to something I think was really important about why you're speaking out now. And I want to I want to give you you know a chance to kind of run with that a bit more. Wrestling fans uh, are you know I don't know if you did a demographic breakdown, but probably the older ones maybe slant toward Trump. Maybe they don't. I don't know if there's been any polling of wrestling fans. You've uh, you've lived all over the the country. You understand the country. That's another reason I want to talk to you. You've been all around the world representing America, right? And one of the biggest brands in sports and entertainment in the world. Um, why now? You, you posted a video uh, this week uh, encouraging the president to wear a mask. That's really powerful. Uh, and and you've chosen now to speak out. You got into it a little bit. You're also the father of four kids, right? Yeah. Um, what, what do you want people to know about, about why Mick, is, Mick Foley is, is speaking out now and what your message is? 
Yeah. Um, well, back when I was co-hosting Air America uh, as, a, as a guest co-host, I felt like I'd earned the right to speak out because I was, I was constantly reading. I was watching TV from all different viewpoints. Uh, I wanted to see what people had to say. And I would read uh, books not only um, from the left, but from Sean Hannity and uh, Bill O'Reilly and people like that. Uh, and I thought I had a really good perspective. I think the fact that I've worked in every single state in the country and uh, 38 countries around the world gives me a perspective to where I could go. On one day, I went from, I believe, Paul Jones, Paul Tudor Jones, one of the world's richest men. On consecutive days, I went from being a guest at his, I believe, his 40th birthday party. And it was crazy. It was just crazy. It was like, uh, Dad, can we uh, go downstairs and play football? And he goes down to this giant basement, and there's a Tiki Barber of the Giants, and a, I, maybe it was Ron Harper of the Jets. And we come upstairs, and uh, I'm trying to think of the band, the ones who sang Love Train. They're playing oh, in the living Love Train, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, and that was bothering Google it. Yeah, get, get to work on that, Paul. Uh, and so it was a great night to celebrate Paul Tudor Jones' birthday. And then the next evening, I was uh, refereeing a match at the Sanatobia, Mississippi Salvation Army, uh, you know, community center. And I felt equally comfortable in both, you know, locations that I was known as a guy who liked to save money on the road. And so even when I was WWE champion, it was not unusual for me to be crashing on someone's couch or in a spare bedroom and you would see people from all walks of life you know they weren't necessarily either republican or democrat some of them were some of them weren't some didn't care at all and you really get a chance to talk to people from all walks of life that i don't think politicians who are cocooned with their own uh, constituents have that same chance so i did feel comfortable speaking out in 2003 2004 for me a real heartbreaker was um after Obama was elected, I thought to myself, uh, you know, wow, this is going to be a game changer because how can anyone not like Obama? <laughs> and then when I saw not only the hatred that came out, you know, I think if you want to give Trump credit for something, it's that he realized that racism was lying much closer, you know, uh, and that if he tapped into that, he was running much closer to the surface than any of us wanted to admit to. And he tapped into it and allowed it to fuel. Once he struck gold with the birther thing and saw that there was uh, a market for that, uh, I think he realized he could have a, you know, a conceivable shot at the presidency. But when I saw the, the, the Senate just stonewalling Obama, uh, refusing to even take up his, uh, you know, to take up uh, votes on things from Merrick Garland or anything. Like, they wouldn't vote on anything. Right. I just lost my faith in the process. Uh, I really did. So even though I did uh, like Obama, admired and respected him, I lost the sense that I could make any kind of a difference. And so I rarely spoke out about politics on social media. It really wasn't until Trump started running uh, where I did a couple things towards the end. And Paul, what I found was that people felt like they could express their anger much more readily than they ever had before. Yeah. So, for example, when Obama was making his final speech, I put a, uh, to the country, 
I put up a, his photo on Facebook and a simple statement that said, I will miss this thoughtful man. Mm. And whatever you thought of Obama's politics, whether you agreed or disagreed, I don't think you could argue that he wasn't thoughtful, right? That's all I put up there. And I was so shocked by the anger that came out. Uh, now, granted, 80 to 90% was positive. And of course, most people aren't commenting at all. And it got a, a lot of likes, retweet, uh, well, shares on Facebook. But I was really struck by how angry people were mm-hmm. and how they felt now much more comfortable to express that anger. And I think we've seen that over the last four years with uh, Trump supporters that uh, the whole idea of uh, uh, agreeing to disagree without being disagreeable has uh, become really an antiquated uh, notion. Uh, Up until the last three months, the only time I spoke out, though, was when something would really make me angry, like when uh, he would be bad-mouthing John McCain Mm -hmm. after John was deceased, uh, and I would put something out. Like, I just couldn't help it. Like, I'm watching... You know, at, you know, real Donald Trump, bad-mouthing John McCain, and it's making me sick to my stomach. Or when he would come out, like, seemingly in joy uh, after um, Elijah Cummings' house was broken into. Like, gee, that's too bad, with five exclamation points. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was like, what manner of, I would think, what manner of human being is this? So for people who supported him, uh, one of the arguments I would make is like, listen, if you saw a guy, just a guy or a woman, just to be all inclusive, mocking someone whose house had been broken into, you could come up with any number of names to uh, describe that person. I'm going to go with a two-word uh, entry. It begins with D, ends with B. That would be my word for that guy. But then when you realize that guy has 80 million followers, whether or not they're all real or not, it's still 30 to 40 in the lowest case scenario. Uh, so you take a guy who'd be a simple DB for mocking someone who has had his house broken into, and now you multiply that by tens of millions of people, and I just think that's a cruel, that's a really cruel individual, and I don't think we should have a cruel individual as president of the United States. And originally, Paul, I think when I said that I would do the show, I said, get me closer to election time. I need to be able to show my grandchildren that I tried to do something. And originally that was my goal was speaking out a little bit, just to say, okay, I do have a record here to show that I tried to do something. Not that I thought it would help at all, but as this madness continued, I thought to myself, what if, what if I did have the opportunity or the potential to change a few minds. If people knew that deep down, I want to be liked by everyone. I mean, that's why you get into wrestling, you know, because you want to total acceptance from complete strangers. You know, you dress up into this weird type of fictional fantasy warfare and put yourself through great trials and tribulations to earn approval from total strangers, right? So deep down, I want to be liked. But at this point, speaking up and maybe swaying people, you don't know. I asked a couple of the guys, Dave Batista and Kevin Nash are two notable uh, WWE Hall of Fame wrestlers who uh, speak up frequently. And I was like, how do you handle the, the negativity? And they said, you just, you know, you mute some of it, you accept some of it, and you try to sway a few people at a time. And who's to say that those few people might 
you know, flip Texas from red to blue or Georgia or even South Carolina. And so my hope with this election, and clearly, you know, this is not something I'm doing single-handedly, but if I'm willing to do it, hopefully there are other people out there willing to do it. And what I'm hoping is that despite his greatest attempts, you know, to, to, um, to lessen the outcome, right? Uh, which it's clear, I think, to any fair-minded individual he's attempting to do. If we could somehow flip Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, it becomes a repudiation, not just on Trump, but on Trumpism. Right. And then the Republican Party is forced to rebuild in a way that's much more constructive to all of us. So that's my hope, is that I can be part of a movement that uh, that wins the election and possibly even makes it, uh, you know, a landmark decision against what Trump stands for. I think you are. You, you, you are having an influence and you're having an influence in ways, Mick, that I don't think a lot of folks can have. I think there's a lot of noise, but in these, you know, final days and weeks, I think I've, I've talked a lot about how the losers and suckers comments really hurt Trump with people who could be moved, independents, yeah. Republicans who might flip the switch in the other way. But I think you talk to a demographic, you talk to parts of his base that are maybe movable and maybe that moves Florida, maybe that moves a couple people in Arizona. Um, and I, I, I'm grateful for it. I know it's, it's, it's a time where you will, um, you know, have people, it feels like your family turning against you, right? People have supported you your whole career and now they're coming at you because of this stand. But I think you're doing the right thing and something that your grandkids are going to be proud of. We will also, uh, I, I looked it up. It was the OJs that did Love Train. Oh, so yeah. You were hanging with the OJs. Um, yeah. And I think that shows, you know, that story you told about being in Paul Tudor Jones' house and then being, you know, out in, 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 the, in the field is kind of part of why your perspective is so valuable. You're the ultimate uptown, downtown guy, right? And everywhere in between. But you also have a viewpoint of having seen Trump in this really weird way at this very important time. The two of you were inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame at the right. same year. Um, so I want to ask you, what, what, what was your experience with him when he was in the WWE, when he was wrestling at WrestleMania? Um, did you ever get a chance to body slam him? Uh, tell us about that time where Trump and the WWE were, were intertwined. Sure. Uh, I never actually had a chance to speak to him until the Hall of Fame. And even that was a, a very short but pleasant uh, conversation. Uh, when he came in, I can't remember it was 2000, I think it was 2007. He did play a major part in the biggest angle of the year, which was uh, uh, Mr. McMahon and uh, Donald Trump had wrestlers representing them. I think it was Umaga for Mr. McMahon and Bobby Lashley for Donald Trump. Right. And uh, the loser, if uh, Trump's guy lost, he would have his, it was hair versus hair. Either Vince or uh, Donald Trump was going to have their head shaved. And both of them had kind of iconic hairstyles. Uh, so knowing that one of those gentlemen was going to lose their hair was a, was, a, was a big part of WrestleMania. At a certain point, I was in contention to be Trump's guy. And in 2007, I would not have taken issue with that. You know, I'd grown up along uh, Long Island. I knew all about Donald Trump. You know, I accepted him for what he was. You know, I, uh, you know an entertainer, right? Uh, entertainer and uh, arguably a successful businessman, although that's up in the air these days. Uh, and ultimately, they went with Bobby Lashley instead. Uh, I do know that when Trump was there, he looked straight ahead. 
He didn't, he did not talk to anybody or make eye contact, but I would hear from people who were in meetings with him that he was a pretty good guy. So this is where I'm going to say, like I have heard anecdotally about nice things he's done. A check he wrote for someone who was pretty much a stranger to go to college, probably out of the Trump Foundation, probably not, all right? But occasionally there would be moments. Dee Snyder, uh, you know, is a friend of mine, was a friend of Trump's. Uh, he thinks his politics have gone off the rail. I know a young lady who dated him after his uh, uh, um, divorce from Marla Maples, and she spoke highly of him. Not much of a dancer, though. Uh, and my only interaction with him was that after I did my speech, I went on first. And that was a point of contention because I heard during the week that Trump's speech was going to block out mine from airing on television. Hmm. And I let that get to me to the point where I was going to come on. I was going to take off my ring, throw it into the crowd, say that this night meant nothing on me and being inducted was the biggest mistake I ever made. And then I gathered my cool. I realized my children were going to be out there, that I'd likely not be addressing a crowd of that size again in my life. That was Madison Square Garden, where I grew up taking trains to, hitchhiking to, to see the matches. And I just accepted it for the honor it was. Gave what I thought was a really good speech, or at least the president did, because I went through the curtain. Mr. McMahon gave me a hug. The Undertaker watches with Mr. McMahon. He's not out in the crowd, like giving the thumbs up on camera. I gave him a hug, and then I walked through the curtain. The first person I saw was the president with at least two of his children. I couldn't tell you. It was Ivanka and either uh, uh, Don Jr. or Eric. I can't. And he goes, "That was an excellent speech." And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Trump, which I thought meant, would you like to be on um, Apprentice? Uh, but I never got that call. I was on, here's, this is the type of friend I am, Paul. Um, Dee Snyder called me up. I was busy doing something. And he goes, hey. Dee Snyder, who is, who is, is, is the legendary lead singer of Twisted Sister. Right, uh, Twisted Sister, yeah. And he's been, he actually retweeted me a couple of months ago and I lost my shit. I mean, I remember seeing the videos growing up and. Love and Twisted Sister. He's been outspoken quite a bit, but sorry, I, I sidebar. Maybe don't know who Dee Snyder is. Dee's become a really good friend of mine over the years. It was 2001 where I had a book, a uh, second memoir called Foley is Good. But it's the, the basic main part of the book, about 150,000 word book, so it was no small book. It took me about seven weeks to write. I used to write everything by hand, by myself. Then, of course, you have an editor who makes suggestions and someone to clean up my uh, punctuation and grammar or whatnot. But all the writing itself that was done, I did myself. And I spent six or seven weeks writing the main part of the book and another six months writing maybe an extra 20,000 words about this case WWE had with the Parents Television Council. That's really what got me uh, politically motivated because I saw so many signs, you know, Brent Bozell. Junior had grown up in a household where his father was very political. Ghost wrote Conscience of a Conservative. Uh, they were taking great issue with uh, WWE's programming at the time. And so I said, Joe Lieberman was on their board. And I thought Joe was being taken advantage of. You know, he, he would say, I don't watch the shows, but I read reports. I was like, read reports. Well, read a report on Hansel and Gretel. And you have a story about child abuse, child abandonment. Cannibal, you know, run it down, you know, starvation, uh, uh, burning by fire. Like, you know, I, anyone can make a report. Just an example, okay? Right. I was cited by the Parents Television Council 
for making like seven references to my genitalia. Okay. So, and this is what went down. So I've been in some matches in Japan that involved explosives. Okay. I know it sounds silly, but you'll do incredible things when you have a children and a mortgage. So I'm talking to Shane McMahon as the commissioner and he's afraid to take on the undertaker. The undertaker is a legendary mythological character in WWE lore. And I put my arm around him and I said, Shane, and I want you to count the references. I said, did you know that when I was in Japan, I lost both my guys? One reference. He said, both of them? Two references. I said, both of them. And then I said, no, just kidding. There they are, four. And I opened up my pants and said, there you are, you little rascals. And I waved at them. Five. None of them going beyond G-rated territory, but yet seen by the Parents Television Council as being references, lewd and dirty references to my genitalia. And I just, I was the first guy that really looked at it and said, well, where's all this coming from? Well, it's coming from one report from Indiana University. And so I called the guy thinking I'm just going to get his voice message. I can at least say that I tried. And he talked to me, Dr. Gans, I think his name was, he talked to me about an hour. I took all these notes and I asked, has anyone else called you? Said, no, they just accepted it on its face. And so I said, like, uh, you know, the references to the genitalia, for example, uh, point, I said, so they did this thing called a crotch chop, you know? Yes. And, uh, you know, what, now you could argue it shouldn't have been there. I had this one memorable occasion at Disneyland, like in 2000, where my wife goes, I think Pooh Bear is trying to communicate with you. Pooh Bear is a non-speaking Disney character, not a face character like Cinderella, Snow White, who can talk. And then I, I have one in my, I'm holding up to the camera. I have a one and a half year old. Thus, here is Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear is a very influential character in our family. Yes. Now, now please tell, tell me the terrible thing about Pooh Bear, Mick. He did the crotch chop to me. He went, boom, chopped <laughs> his crotch like that. Uh, and so I asked uh, Dr. Gans, like, are, do you count it every time it's done? He said, if they do it, I, I count it. Well, there was a guy named X-Pac, who was a good friend, but he was real proud of his genitalia. He would come out and do like 20 of them in a row. It's like, well, that's just four seconds worth of a guy going like this. And we're going to count those. And I, it was crazy, the stuff I found out. I was like, listen, I don't see any simulated sexual activity, but you came up with like 272 counts. And he goes, well, that would be like a hand on a shoulder. I went, a hand on a shoulder? I said, that doesn't sound sexual. He said, it would be if it was done with, I don't know. He had some kind of wow. way of, so also I said, I don't see any drug use on our show. Uh, he said, we saw simulated drug use and he goes, that would be beer drinking. And I was like, Dr. Gans, come on. So I did a study where I watched a week's worth of cheers and a week's worth of general hospital. And obviously there's far more beer drinking or drug use as he would say. And so, and I was a far more shoulder touching in a suggestive manner than you would see on our show. And I just thought, though, this is, you know. Uh, so this, this, is all, this is all pre-Trump, right? This is all pre-Trump. Now, now our, our norms and mores are like out the window. Oh, I'm glad yeah. you brought up the beer drinking because the irony of, of Trump's time in the WWE is that at one point he gets into it with Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? And Stone Cold, I think, does a stunner on him. But Stone Cold is the people's champion, right? Yes. Stone Cold represented the angry white man 
that 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 kind of embodies now who seems to be Trump's base. So it was ironic. I even dressed up like Stone Cold one time for Halloween. Sidebar: one of my many costumes that was very popular. But um, and my son was Hulk Hogan, and my wife was Randy Savage, which was pretty wow, amazing. Yeah. yeah, frills the whole deal it was amazing. But but point is. It's kind of ironic now looking back on it. I watched the video that, that Trump basically gets annihilated by his base, right? It's like, it's like the real people's champion is the person who speaks out not against the man, but against Trump, who is the man. And yeah. he gets stunned by, by, by Stone Cold. So I wonder if that brings us to the fall where maybe it all comes back around and America kind of does a Stone Cold stunner on him. Because he's become the man now, right? The guy that he that he sought to to oppose, he is that that authority figure now, and it's come full circle. Let let me ask you. You kind of touched on it earlier, Mick. Uh, a question I ask of all our guests on a very basic level: You're you're a wrestler. You're an author. You're a, you're a man of of great wisdom. Um, and we talked about it earlier. That we talk about a lot in this show about anger, uh, and I think it's a natural response. And what you choose to do with it is so key. So we ask everyone, Mick Foley, what makes you angry? Petty cruelty. Hmm. Yeah, petty cruelty. Um, I've got a paperweight that says no act of kindness, however small, is ever wasted. And I would say conversely, no act of cruelty, however small, is ever truly forgotten. And I come back, this is, I'd just been on the Today Show in 2001. Uh, I interviewed by Katie Couric. I got invited back for a children's book I had in October. Uh, so I asked my publicist that very mature question. Does that mean Katie likes me? It's well, they just booked you four months in advance. It means somebody likes you. And I go out to uh, watch my son's Little League game. And here I am, former three-time WWE champion with two of those victories over Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, I want to come two, back to that. Okay. Uh, and I'm sitting in a bleacher, and I go back to the last time I was on a Little League field where an opposing coach was making fun of the way I ran, the way I threw. He says to his players, uh, look at that, a guy runs like he's got a dump in his pants. And so now I'm behind the plate, and uh, the umpire, who now, believe it or not, or at least was the head of uh, uh, women's softball in the United States, Kenny Erickson, great softball coach. But at the time, he was just the older brother of a good friend of mine. And he hears me doing the John C. Riley stepbrothers cry. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, what's wrong? And I went, coach, making fun of me. And all of a sudden, 25 years later, whatever the case may be, I'm brought back to being that kid behind the plate fighting back tears because it's just a stupid comment that uh an adult who should have known better made so yeah i'm a real uh strong advocate of kindness Mm. and you you demonstrate it every time people who've been around you see it you've been really committed to children's causes and written children's books and you're you're kind you play santa i want to talk about santa um but before i do you mentioned the rock uh you beat the rock twice right and, yes. and uh, you fought The Rock for years, kind of legendary, epic clashes. Yeah. Uh, the Rock recently endorsed Joe Biden. Yeah. There's been talk about, about The Rock as, as a legitimate future political candidate. I, I, often, uh, I also noted that when I look back on the Trump tapes in the 90s, at one point he's interviewed by Jesse Ventura, 
who asked him to endorse him uh, when he was running for president. He had been the governor of Minnesota. This is not, you know, uncharted territory. Um, do you think The Rock will actually run? And what do you think about The Rock as a candidate for some office or, 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 or politics in general? Yeah. Uh, first of all, with Jesse, I really thought Jesse won the governorship uh, as an independent of Minnesota with a $300,000 budget and then became one of the most recognizable faces in the world. My mom to this day has, uh, uh, well, she has it because I gave it to her for Christmas. It's a poster-sized photo of uh, Jesse holding my arm up after I won the title at SummerSlam 1999. Uh, but I really thought Jesse could usher in a strong independent party, and I really would like to see that in the future because I think if you have a strong independent party, and even if you have five senators who are independents, 20 congressional representatives. Now that makes everyone a little more honest, I believe. I, I just think it'd be really constructive for, for our country. But as far as the rock, yeah, I was asked on TMZ about it and they wanted me to say, would you run for vice president? I said, wait, let me make this really clear. If I say I'm vice president, this becomes a joke. I want to make it really clear that I don't think rock running for, uh, or Dwayne running for the presidency is a joke. I think somebody who could bring people together from all sides, you know, he says he's an independent and a centrist. Uh, people of all walks of life see him, you know, he comes from a Samoan and African Canadian, I guess as African North American ancestry. His uh, dad came from uh, Canada, uh, his father's fam family from Canada. Um, people are kind of colorblind, like they don't see a race, they see a human being. And I think he would be in a unique position to bring the country together. He took a lot of flack for, for um, coming out and endorsing uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, I can see it in the comments. You know, I, I do read it, some of the comments. It was like, I used to really enjoy. I guess I won't be watching Jumanji 2. Uh, you know, things like that. The same people who say to me, like, I just lost complete respect for you. Like, really? I worked for 30 years to earn it. and I lost it because I have a difference of opinion. Mm. Uh, but I think that uh, I think Dwayne would be an excellent candidate. He already surrounds himself with great people like he really does. Uh, I was in the theater watching fighting, uh, um, fighting my family story about uh, Paige, great wrestling movie. Uh, and I see come up on the screen, I'm in there with my family last year, and it comes up like producer Danny Garcia, and I yell out to my wife, that's his ex-wife. So I love the fact that his ex-wife is his best friend, mm. still handles his money. Uh, they go into business ventures together, and I think that speaks really well of a guy who could get along with everybody. I would be all for it. I'd be hesitant to, like, people say, are you going to endorse Joe Biden? Like, it's one thing for Dwayne to endorse somebody because, you know, he's in a league of his own. Like the last thing I want is for my uh, opinions to become a joke. Like, oh, he's got the wrestler endorsing him. I remember like even Chuck Norris, there was some feedback, you know, when he would endorse the Republican candidate. And I'm like, hey, I'm just a wrestler. Chuck Norris counted to infinity mm -hmm. twice, right? And if he's getting <laughs> ridiculed, 
But your open. endorsement matters, Mick Foley. Have you formally endorsed Joe Biden yet? No, no, and I won't. But anyone who but, looks but at why, But why, why, why not? I, I will, I'm going to press you on that because I'm going to ask you to make some news here, Mick. I mean, I just you know. don't think that I'm of a uh, stature where I think a, a formal endorsement becomes a joke from any wrestler. Uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think for the people who have heard you speak so far on this show, they understand why it's not a joke. And I think your true fans understand why it's not a joke. So even if you won't make a formal endorsement, I think your comments are to be yeah. taken very seriously. Sure, thank you. you. Know, and, and really, like, look, the president is not someone to be taken seriously right now, right? And you have many more best-selling books. Uh, you're, you're, you're- oh, so, you know, here's, this is the thing. Uh, all right, it, uh, it, you know, it irks me. Essentially, if you put your name on someone else's work in grade school, you know, you fail, right? You get caught and uh, you were, you know, expelled, whatever the case may be. You put your name on somebody else's work as an adult, you're considered a best-selling author. So the fact that I write my own, you know, like I do my own writing and I'm proud of it. For better or worse, you read it's my my work on that page with a little bit better, you know, grammar on it. Um, and spelling's a little better. Uh, so when someone so actively brags about books they didn't write, it gives you some insight into that, you know, a character. And, you know, he talks about, the president talks about doing more for African-Americans than any president. But Lincoln, I'm like, you signed two bills that were popular bills. Like, these were no-brainers. Right. Uh, here's one point I would make. This is you learn when you're a wrestler, when you're doing your promos. You build someone up before you tear them down. Because if you, if you defeat someone who you've declared to be nobody, then you beat nobody. If you beat someone who you built up to be, uh, you know, amazing, then you've beaten somebody amazing. And I know that's not the way it's done in politics. But if I was Joe Biden, I would concede that Trump made the right call in shutting down travel to and from China. But I would also say, you know, after reading Woodward's book, like, this wasn't some bold declaration. This was a guy finally listening to five advisors, like you know Azar, Redfield, uh, Fauci, a guy named Pottinger, and one other guy. So I had thought at first, like the analogy would be, okay, you hit a towering home run, right? Or you threw, you threw an amazing touchdown pass. But guess what? By the time that rule was put into effect, 38 other countries were already there. So you are, in a sense one of 38 people who threw a touchdown bragging about it for the next seven months. Right. You know, if you hit a towering home run in baseball and then strike out or don't even come to the plate for the next seven months, you're the worst baseball player of all time. <laughs> but I don't even think given what I've learned that it could be described as a towering home run or a touchdown. It was more like a layup. Right. Like you, you made, that's a layup. You've right. got everyone who matters telling you to make this call and you make it. Yes, you did the right thing, but as president, you're supposed to do the right thing every day. Mm. Not take, you know, not take a pass on the most important issues. So if I was Biden, I would concede that he made the right call, but put it into context as being the only call that could be made, and then ask what else has he done for the country besides uh, make it more difficult for us to, uh, you know, to get a handle on this pandemic. I think you, it, I was going to ask you for your advice uh, in debating because 
you know, you you guys learn how to be the masters of one-liners, the masters of zinger, timing, delivery, all of it. And I'm glad you you touched on the rock in the way that you did because I, I I am a huge advocate of creating more space and more structure and more infrastructure for legitimate independent candidates. And yes. if it's the rock or Mike Bloomberg or whoever it is that creates the party. With, with, that, that may or may not make themselves the king of it. The problem with Howard Schultz was that he designated himself the king of the independence, right? If he had just created a legitimate independent party, we'd be maybe in a very different place. But if you and The Rock and a couple other people, you know, start pushing a, a legitimate independent party, 40% of the country is there. I'm there. A lot of other folks are there. If we can get a couple people in the Senate, I think you're right. I think it is a key part of our future. But I want to ask you a really specific question. You're up on the debate is this week with Kamala Harris and Pence. This will air after that. Uh, There may or may not be more debates between Trump and and Biden. Uh, Given your experience, what's your counsel on on debating? And what would you tell Biden about how to take on Trump and his one-liners and his his snaps and all the other crap? Well, you know, so that first debate was just off the rails. There's no way to prepare for anything like that. Uh, you know what I saw? There was a situation I had, and I looked it up because I remember how frustrated I was. It wasn't WWE. It was a group called Impact Wrestling. And it was a pretty serious situation. It was coming to addressing the concussion that one of, uh, one of the performers had and the decision not to let him uh, wrestle. So it's where fact meets fiction. And then it, it included me and another wrestler named Matt Morgan talking about our decisions to donate our brains to science to give it to the uh, Boston Concussion Legacy Center. It used to be called the Center for Traumatic Encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. And I like that because as long as I can continue to pronounce it, I think I'm okay. But I did have a lot of head injuries. And so this was something I really took to heart. And Ric Flair was one of the greatest wrestlers and microphone men in history. He just kept he wouldn't shut up. I couldn't make my point. And so even though Ric Flair is arguably the greatest of them all, I took his microphone, I threw it on the floor. And I think that was the only thing he could have done. I, I, think, that's, he, I think that's right. I think that's right. I've, I've said this, that, that you know, he kind of walked into a trap in that he had rules that, that were there to, to empower Trump. Nobody could cut his mic. He had a Fox moderator. I mean, he was kind of you know, the the stage was kind of set before it even started. So I think what he could have done to prepare better was to, you know, disrupt the rules or create a way to disrupt Trump before he could disrupt him. But now we're, we're going into this uncharted territory. I want to get to something, Mick, that that you did touch on. You have experienced unimaginable physical pain. You've, you've seen the ups and downs of life. You're a true rags to riches story. Um, and, And you always bring positivity. And in these tough times, I think people need it now more than ever. So, uh, Mick Foley, what makes you happy? Oh, wow. Well, hey, I think it's, I don't brag about much, but I don't think you would be uh, incorrect if you said this beard was approaching epic proportions. Uh, So I have, uh, this will be my ninth year in the red suit. You said I play Santa. I had to bite my tongue. I don't play Santa, Rykoff. I become Santa. So I'll show you like this is, you know, I've, I've got my belt here. Unfortunately, the belt doesn't fit me. I have to order a new one, but it's like, oh, it's not just any belt. It's like, oh, it's the hand carved leather, you know, and it's like the detail and the belt buckle. So uh, that's if like anyone- if, if Santa, if Santa, if there was a Santa belt championship in the WWE, 
That's what it would look like. I mean, that's, that's a serious right. belt right there. So I, even last night, uh, one of the things I do when I have my hip uh, replaced in April 2017, my knee replaced in uh, September 2017, a lot of time on the shelf. Um, and so I spent about three to five hours every day working on my handwriting until I felt like it looked like Santa's handwriting. And so now one of the things I do is I send out handwritten letters from the big guy. Um, and they, they're time consuming. So uh, I probably do about 50 or 60 of those a year, but I do a couple a night. I really, I just enjoy, I enjoy going back to my happy place, which is Christmas and being Santa. And I look forward to spreading joy as that beloved character. So this beard will be white in December and it's going to look epic. I do wear a wig um, and I've got, I've got a, you know, I try to bring the same commitment to character that I did to the characters I portrayed in WWE. And so I've got this, uh, I think it's a pretty telling story about my son and I, when he was my elf, before he got older, I was like, just put the curly wig on. He's 6'4 now. He'd be Buddy Jr. But for three years, he would tag along faithfully. We would do these appearances um, on Christmas Eve where the parents would wake up the children and they would spy on, observe Santa putting out the presents. And essentially, for me and my son, we'd be putting on a performance without acknowledging that we had an audience. Hmm. And we would feel we'd get really nervous, get butterflies before we went in to do our thing, and then he would just pull off the, you know, the uh, the, the lines perfectly. Like Santa, we don't have time. We lost an hour ago over the Atlantic. Oh, there's always time for a cookie, little buddy. And we just had the best time. And then you get the text message from the parents, usually within three minutes of leaving the house, and they are as happy as they will ever be in their lives. And I turn to my son and I say, oh, buddy, I feel like I just had a big pay-per-view match. And he goes, but dad, there are only three people there. I said, it doesn't matter. It's just, uh, you know, the idea of creating a memory and uh, creating something magical that in some cases they'll remember for the rest of their lives. Mm. I'm so glad we got to that because what you do really is special. Uh, you are Santa. I apologize for the mystery. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Played the yeah. beard is epic then let me ask you this as as as, as we kind of wind down here mick in any in any of your characters or as any of your characters this is a hard time for america it's going to be a hard couple weeks ahead probably a couple months ahead you're a guy who's experienced unimaginable pain right but you keep a positive attitude you keep inspiring others you keep you represent a lot of the best of what this country is all about if any of your characters had a message for america right now what would that message be? Hold on, let me, I, I can't answer this, but a friend of mine can. Hold on just a second. <laughs> Mick has left the screen. He will return. Oh, that is due to love, bringing you tidings of great comfort and joy. What I wish for the United States of America, that wacky pack of 50 states is a healthy dose of peace, ow, love and understanding. Oh, have mercy. Bravo. Thank you, dude. Love. Oh, is that dude love? Wow. Thank you, dude. Love. I was hoping we'd see dude love today. We got Santa. We got mankind. We got dude love. But most importantly, we got Mick Foley. My friend, you are so dear to me and to this country. I have to give you some gifts and you can pass them on to dude love or whoever you want. 
Uh, we can't do this in person, but we will do it down the road, I, I promise. So in the meantime, I got some uh, Angry Americans gear Hi. coming your way. Thank it you. It is now available on the Angry Americans website. They're back up in there for folks to, to get hooked up. Super comfortable. We don't have tie-dye, but we might have to do tie-dye, man. My daughter does an amazing reverse tie-dye, so we can turn that into a tie-dye. All right. And for when you're out there with the tit mice and, and the fire pit, uh, we got a, a bottle of Uncle Nearest, uh, 1884, America's best small batch whiskey. Awesome stuff. That is a big supporter of this show. Uh, if, you, if you don't want it for yourself, you can find somebody in Florida to give it to when you get there. And then the last gift that's also a question, uh, I will be sending you some peeps, the, the wonderful Easter treats. And okay. we ask all of our guests, Mick Foley, if you could choose one color, yellow, pink, or blue, which color would you choose and why? I'm old school. I grew up with the yellow peeps, and uh, some traditions uh, should stay the same. You and Sarah Jessica Parker, she said the same thing. Like, that would be an epic tag team, like a political tag team. Maybe you could run for governor of New Jersey, and she could run for mayor of New York City. But we're going to do a reunion or, or a, a gathering. It's going to be like WrestleMania of Angry Americans. We're going to bring everybody back at some point, all, all 80 episodes worth of guests. And uh, I think maybe you and Sarah Jessica Parker sharing a peep would be among the, my, the most amazing images possible. Before we leave, could I tell you my Colbert Santa story? Please. Colbert joined us a couple weeks ago, and, and I would be diligent. In my, I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't give you that opportunity. Please do. Okay. So I always, I used to love uh, the new girl show with Zoe Deschanel, right? Yeah. Love Zoe, love the show. And I got an offer to be Santa on an episode. And I like, I had to fight the urge to just take it sight unseen. And the money was good. And I, uh, you know, I would have had to audition, but I had a feeling that I was the front runner. And then I get the script and it's like, well, it's a phony Santa. And he's like a perv Santa where he's talking about his North Pole. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. You know, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't care if I love the show. I can't be the per. I can't be that guy. Santa's got to be true to me. And so then another offer comes in for the Colbert rapport. And my agent tells me, I think it's along the same lines. I said, oh, I hate to do it. I love the rapport, but I have to pass on it. And then I watch, it's the final episode of the rapport. And Santa is in a sleigh, Stephen joins him, and they fly away into the sky for the final shot ever, the Colbert Report. I was like, that should have been me. They treated Santa with deference and kindness and respect. And I, I was hurt. I, I'm, I'm angry at myself for weeks for turning that down. Would have loved to have been the Santa who flew into the sky with Stephen Colbert. I was there for that final episode. I didn't get to talk to Stephen about it, but I was like the least famous person there. <laughs> And I was standing like behind Willie Nelson, right? Like Willie Nelson standing one side of me and then like Bill de Blasio and Big Bird and like Doris Kearns Goodwin. It was the most random assemblance of people I had ever seen or been at in my entire life. And the only way it would have been more perfect is if you were there. So I think we have to do a makeup call. We'll get you and Colbert together. We will fix this. And maybe just in time for the holidays, we're going to make this right, man. We're going to fix this. Hey, thanks, Paul. I know we were going to talk about the video I put out. Um, I don't know. I think we've ended on a perfect uh, note. But if someone has a chance, can we discuss that just for a second? Please, go for it. Go for it. I yeah, think it's really uh, important. 
I was going to play a clip of it, but I think it's better if you talk about it. Well, you, you, maybe I can set it up uh, uh, because we've seen how this played out. But I thought to myself, well, you know, wow, if Trump were to just admit he made a mistake uh, and encouraged his people to wear masks, like he's the one guy who could pull that off. And it brings me back to when uh, uh, the Fonz, Henry Winkler, nicest man in show business, on an episode of Happy Days, the Fonz went back and got his GED. Uh, and thousands of people went back and got theirs because they followed his lead. And so in one of the takes that I didn't use of the video I shot, I was like, Mr. President, you are as close to the Fonz as your supporters can get. Like, they will follow your lead. If you tell them to wear masks, socially distance, they will wear masks and socially distance. You're the only person who can do that. And when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, if I do that, that gives them a better shot at winning the election. And then I thought, but what if, what if I had the potential to be that person who pushes him just a little bit to make the right decision? Could that conceivably save, it would save tens of thousands of lives if he could convince his supporters to wear masks. That's the single biggest failing of his presidency was that he politicized the wearing of the mask and social distancing. And then I thought to myself, well, if I have a, it's a wonderful life moment and you realize you could have done something and didn't, that would be, you know, what if is the two dirty, with all respect to titmouse, which is actually one word with a hyphen or just a compound word. What if are the two dirtiest words in the English language? I thought I have to throw it out address him personally, make it clear it's not a joke, and just say, Mr. President, you have a chance to do the right thing. Whether you win or lose the election, if you do this, if you encourage you know, millions of people to wear masks, you will go down as a hero and a good man. If you don't, history is not going to be kind to you. And within 24 hours, it was clear that he was going in opposite direction. He was doubling down on uh, this virus not being as serious as people thought. And as a result, uh, I mean, tens of thousands of people who don't need to die are going to die. So I at least put it out there. It was a serious video. It was meant for him to look at. It was said in a respectful way. But I really wanted to take my shot. And I took and it missed. But at least I took the shot. It didn't miss yet, Mick. It's bouncing around. Okay. okay. Like any really good shot, it's kind of, it's, it's bouncing around and it, it may hit a couple things. It may land. It's going to be like, you know, the JFK bullet, right? It, it, it's, it's out the there. Buzzer beater from last year. It, like it's it. out there and we're going to, we're going to amplify it. And you make a great point that if you can wear a mask with one ear, it's yeah. easy for others to wear masks. And I do think that even if a couple people see your video, it may, it may encourage them to wear masks. It will change some lives. We say it a lot in this show. Nobody made a greater mistake than he or she who did nothing because they only did little. You were doing a lot, man. You've always been doing a lot. You're a true patriot. You're an awesome human being. You're a role model. Uh, you're, you're a truly inspiring person. I'm honored to have you as a friend. I'm so grateful you finally joined me on the show, and I'm just excited to see what you keep doing. Maybe you can go down to Florida and run as an independent senator and take out one of the senators down there, and we will see a new phase and the, the greatest character yet in Mick <laughs> Foley's life, the, the amplification of Mick Foley himself. I don't know about that, but anything, it's become a, a, just an accepted part of Japanese life uh, that former wrestlers will run for the diet and win seats 
And then they cut wrestling promos. It's great. It's, uh, but for us, I think Dwayne Johnson could really make it. Uh, Dwayne, I'm pulling for you. And uh, I, I, hope, I hope that happens years from now. I think we're in good hands. Uh, I love Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, I can see her as the first female president. And I can see Dwayne Johnson making a definite run and uh, leading us, you know, into a, a much better place down the road. Excellent. Well, you lead us to a better place every single time, every single day. Appreciate all the good energy you're putting out into the universe, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me and for all that you do. Uh, have a nice day and stay frosty, McFoley. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, brother. There's plenty of reason to be angry, but just like Mick Foley, there's a way to turn it, a way to channel it, a way to harness it, and always a way to make an impact. And now, more than ever, like Mick, you can turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. In every show, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, a positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that comes off that turnbuckle and channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And as Donald Trump again politicizes our gold star families, I ask you to turn your outrage into action and do it by staying in shape too and by moving them legs. Move them legs to support TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. If you're a longtime listener to this show, you know about TAPS. They provide comfort, care, and resources to all those grieving the death of a military loved one. And since 1994, TAPS has provided comfort and hope 24-7 at no cost to surviving families and loved ones. You can find them at TAPS.org. And from now until the end of the year, TAPS is celebrating a milestone for 20 years Team TAPS has honored our heroes and raised awareness about the TAPS mission. And you can join us through December 31st as we celebrate this milestone with a virtual movement. You can participate in an organized virtual race, run, or walk of 20 miles in observance of the 20th anniversary. You can bike, you can swim, you can dance your own distance. There's no fee to register, and you can get involved and support our military survivors by moving them legs. Go to taps.org to find out more and spread the word. It's time to be a helper, and all you got to do is move them legs. Some huge and massive thank yous that are bigger than The Undertaker and King Kong Bundy combined. Most of all, the great and powerful Mick Foley. He's an incredible human being. Go to his website, realmickfoley.com. You can learn about his books. You can learn about his appearances. And you can get a personalized message from Mick right now using Cameo. This is pretty cool. You can send a personal message from Mick to anybody in your life. Think about who in your life might want to get a message from Mick. Maybe for Halloween. 
maybe for Christmas, maybe for your anniversary, but check it out. Go to realmcfoley.com and check out his best-selling books like Have a Nice Day, Foley is Good, and The Hardcore Diaries. And of course, follow him on Twitter, The Real McFoley. Massive thanks also to the rest of our extended tag team, the Righteous Media folks, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Brilliant Bill Schultz. They're all helping me bring this body slam of content to you every single week. Thanks to Uncle Nearest, the best whiskey in America and a huge supporter of this show. Go to UncleNearest.com and you can get the same whiskey that I gave to mankind and all of our previous guests. Check them out. And thanks to our vigilant Patreon sponsors. You all continue to step up. If you're not a Patreon member, go check us out and support us. You can join this movement. You can get behind-the-scenes footage. You can find out first who my upcoming guests are. And we'll have some cocktail hours with me coming up. I am still recognizing Sober October, but we can have a non-alcoholic cocktail this month, and we can have a real cocktail when the election's over. But check us out on Patreon now. You can find the link on Patreon or wherever you found this pod. And I always want to hear from you, so tweet, post on our social, you can call. We even have a number, 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Reach out, and you know what'll happen. I'll make you famous. And as always, thanks to my family, my wife, and my two amazing boys. This week, we celebrate our anniversary. So I want to thank my wife for being the best tag team partner I could ever ask for and for helping us create the best little tag team in America. I played Van Halen for my boys a lot this week, and I told them about Eddie and about Alex. And every time we get in the car, we listen to another song. Every single time before we pull out, we listen to the same song by some different rock and roll brothers. That's, of course, Blitz Creek Bop by the Ramones. My little guys love to run around saying, oi, oh. Now, the Ramones weren't really brothers, but they were awesome. And so are my boys and all the other boys and girls that are out there keeping us going, lifting us up and pushing through the difficult times of going back to school and just being a kid in this pandemic. So my thanks to all of them. And my thanks again to the teachers and coaches, social workers, everybody who's delivering a true team effort to take care of our kids and take care of each other. You're the true heroes and your true helpers. And please keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you, I hear you, and I'm with you. Go to angryamericans.us, sign up for our newsletter, check out our YouTube page. There's now over 80 episodes of content sitting there waiting for you. So go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. We'll continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Until then, we're going to keep this thing going. So stay tuned. Subscribe for free. It's 100% free, unlike a wrestling pay-per-view, and you can share it. And remember, it's okay to be angry, especially now. And know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. Everybody from Stephen Colbert to Governor Christie, Todd Whitman, to Mick Foley. That's because we're paying attention. Dreams is a song by Van Halen released in 1986 from the album 5150. It was the second single from that album, and it hit number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. But it'll always be a top song for me. And nine years after its original release, Dreams was introduced to a new generation of fans when it appeared in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Now, there were three music videos made for the song, 
and the most well-known version was shot in 1986 and featured the U.S. Navy's Blue Angels, performing a whole range of aerial stunts with a Douglas A4 Skyhawk. It was an epic video for an epic song by an epic band. A band of dreamers. A band that inspired dreamers. Dreamers like me, dreamers like Mick Foley, and dreamers like many of you. Eddie Van Halen was a dreamer. He dreamed as an eight-year-old in elementary school in a new country where he didn't speak the language and didn't know anybody. America was built by dreamers, dreamers like Eddie Van Halen. And dreamers will keep it alive now and thriving again one day soon. Keep that dream alive and keep after it because nobody made a greater mistake than he or she who did nothing because they could only do little. This is a match America's going to win. It's not just a dream, it's a certainty. Because of the dreamers. Rest in peace, Eddie. Thanks for all you gave us, man. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty, stay vigilant, America, and keep dreaming.